Welcome to Beyond the Bench, the podcast produced by the North Carolina Judicial College at the UNC School of Government. I'm your host, Jeff Welty, director of the North Carolina Judicial College and a faculty member here at the school. Our goal is to bring you interesting interviews with people who work in or with the court system, including judges, lawyers, academics, and others. This first season of Beyond the Bench focuses on criminal justice. On today's show, I interview Superior Court Judge Carl Fox. Before becoming a judge, Judge Fox was the first African-American district attorney in the state. We talk about his life, his work, and his views on current criminal justice issues, plus whether he would rather drive a Ferrari or a Bentley. Be sure to stay tuned at the end of the podcast to hear a bit about what we have in store for our next episode. Enjoy the interview. I'm here with Carl Fox, who's the Senior Resident Superior Court Judge in District 15B. Uh, Judge Fox, thanks for making time to be with us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, you are here at the school for um, another event to address a group of judges. And as always, you brought down the house. You got a standing ovation. Uh, wonderful to listen to what you had to say. And people were effusive in their praise of you. Uh, and I've seen you have that effect before. Why do you think people react to you that way? I don't know. I, I really always try to appeal to the very best in people. Uh, I really try to have a conversation with them and talk to them about something that that means something in their minds and their their hearts and their souls and that might make them make them rethink how they do things or or what it is they're doing and and I also try to point out my own weaknesses, you know, my own flaws, things that haven't gone so well as in my own life, which, you know, to try to humanize myself in their eyes to say, I'm not just saying this to you. I've, you know, I've made these mistakes and, you know, it's real important that, you know, that we all not make the same mistakes and that whatever it is that's important, hopefully what you're doing is so important that nothing is off the table as far as changes might go in order to make you do better at what it is you do. Well, it's amazing to see. I remember years ago I was going to address a group of Superior Court judges and you were talking to them first and I was kind of sitting in the back waiting for you to finish up and people were laughing and having a good time and they were completely engaged. Uh, it's, it's really just incredible to see. We appreciate your willingness to participate in our program. It's my pleasure. Well, you can't talk to someone very long without some humor, so. Well, you do a good job of it. So, one thing that many of our listeners will know about you is that you've had some health issues in the recent past. You're up and about talking to judges again, so that seems like a good sign. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I, um, my, I've been very fortunate in the fact that for someone who didn't have a match at all as late as August that I had a cord blood match, they were able to send down two cord bloods, two uh, cords for me to harvest the cells from, and uh, they did the transplant, and one of the cords went out over the other and set up shop, and, and my numbers have been going up from blood counts ever since, and they're, they've been normal for the last several months when they hadn't been normal before that for a year. And, um, and it sounds like you've got some prospects of getting back on the bench in the fairly near future, hopefully. I have. I, um, they, they, uh, my doctor told me for the first time that I might be able to go back to work sometime after May 1st, 
which was the first day that I've ever mentioned going back to work. And I'm finding a little bit of a bout. I had the flu, a little bit of a pneumonia developed, but I mean, compared to people who are similarly situated, I, mean, I have not had to go back into the hospital. They've treated with back with antibacterial medication. So I feel very fortunate. Well, very fortunate. That's amazing, and you can't go to any kind of meeting across the state where judges and lawyers are there without folks asking about you and talking about you, and it's wonderful to have some good news. Well, it's, you know, they're very kind. I, uh, I tell people that it's sort of like a sort of a thing where you reap what you sow, that if you treat people nicely and if you're nice to people, you leave on the world with, or people with one of three impressions. They either have a positive impression of you, they have no impression of you, or they have a negative impression of you. And the difference between a positive impression and the other two is very little. Uh, it's just a matter of just doing, treating people nicely. And like I used to go out and buy, buy donuts wherever I went home court for the court personnel and the jurors and stuff like that, and that's what they remembered. And uh, one place I went to, I went to outside of Reedsville, and uh, they, they, the bakery didn't have donuts. So I bought every cake they had <laughs> and uh, carried the cakes back to the jurors and to the court personnel. Even the spirit, senior resident spirit court judge said, you're making me look bad. I said, well, you know, that's not my intent. I just wanted to do something nice for for the people here, and that's, you know, it's just, that's just the way I've always sort of been, and, and I like, I like doing that, I like the idea of people thinking of you, and just thinking, wow, he was a nice person. Well, they, they certainly do, and one of the objectives of this interview segment is really to let people get to know you a little bit, and maybe get to know a bit about your background that they might not have known. So I know that you grew up in eastern North Carolina. That's correct. I grew uh, up in Mount Olive. In Mount Olive. And uh, I was talking to somebody who recalled that you may have been part of the first or one of the first integrated classes at your high school. Is that right? I was one of the first. It was like, it was probably one of the, it, the schools that opened in 1966. And I graduated in 1971. And when I was there in 67, there were only 25 African-American mm -hmm. students in the entire school. So Out of a, so what was the total student body? It was probably at that time somewhere around 700 students. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty small percentage. Of, yeah, that's um, interesting. You know. So you went from there to, to Chapel Hill. Yes. Where you've essentially stayed ever since, right? That's I mean, right. you came and you got stuck here. Yeah. Did you think at that time, as you came as an undergraduate, that you were going to be a lawyer? Did you have that in your mind? I did. I did. I had that in my mind from high school. And although I thought it was going to be corporate at first, it changed along the way. And But I never really thought of myself as living in Chapel Hill for the rest of mm -hmm. my life. I've lived in both counties for some period of time. Never been called for jury duty in either. Amazing. But... Uh, I've been real fortunate because it's, it's not, financially, it's not easy to live in Chapel Hill, Carborough, you know, the uh, northern part of Chatham County. It's just, it's just expensive, and I was fortunate to get a job as an ADA 
Well, you that's right. You started as an assistant district attorney and talking about living someplace where the cost of living is fairly high, the salary that you were making, I, I can only imagine what it was back in those days. Fourteen five. You can do more than imagine. You can remember, obviously. That was the high end of the salary. The actual minimum was twelve five. Oh, you negotiated a good deal yeah. for yourself. So, what motivated you to be? So, you went went to undergrad and then ultimately to law school with this idea of being a corporate lawyer. You said it changed along the way. You wound up working as an assistant DA. What changed it for you? What made you decide to get involved in the criminal justice system? It was the Pinto cases. When I realized that all these people, about 25 people got killed in those cars. And I realized that it was a bunch of economists, lawyers, and corporate execs sitting around going, well, here's the cost of paying off these things, these claims as they come in, and statistically the odds of having them happen, and here's the cost of fixing all these cars. And if someone had to make a decision that we weren't going to fix all these cars, we just paid these claims as they arose. So basically making a decision about life and death. And I realized that although as a corporate lawyer you might have input, that the final decision is going to be out of your hands with people who may not have the same values you have. That was just a little bit much for me. And so I realized being an ADA, that I could make a difference. I could do justice. I could represent people who were the victims of crimes and things like that. And on the other hand, if someone was innocent, I would be in the best position to know that and that I could dismiss a case if, if that was the situation. And I was fortunate enough to work with Wade Barber at the time who believed and had that similar philosophy. In fact, he didn't he came in one day and I was trying a death penalty case and I don't guess he knew I was trying a death penalty case and he was a little uh, shocked by that. But, you know, things worked out. The person didn't end up getting the death penalty and I ended up keeping my job and he left after a little bit more than six years and I became DA and was DA for 20 years thereafter. I did try a number of capital cases but no one got the death penalty but it was sort of fulfilling what was like a mission for me to try case after case after case. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. You became the DA then at quite a young age. At 31, and I was the first African-American DA in the state, appointed in the state back when I became DA in 1984. Wow. And the funny thing was, I knew that there would be a lot of pressure on me because of being the first DA in the next election, three of us were elected. In North Carolina, when there had only been three of us in the whole country. I mean, I was here, Kurt Smoke was in Baltimore, and Norman Early was the DA in Denver. And then we were the only three African-American DAs in the entire United States at that time. And then suddenly after an election, there were just as many African-American DAs in North Carolina as there were in the rest of the country. It's an amazing um, demographic phenomenon. It was. They went on to become mayors. That was never in my plan. Of course, being mayor of Denver or Baltimore is a different thing. Right. Now, speaking of things that were never in your plan, though, my understanding is that even as you were DA and people looked at you and thought that you might make a good judge and that that was something that others were talking about for you, 
it wasn't necessarily something that you were thinking about for yourself. You kind of had to be talked into being a judge. So how did that go about? Well, I joined being DA. I really hadn't thought about it. I thought it was too sedentary. I just didn't think that there was enough action. I thought I would spend my lunches with the bailiff reporting the clerk, which didn't appeal to me. But a bunch of judges talked to me about it. And at that time, I, my ex-wife talked to me about it and indicated to me that I should think about it. When no, got, no one got appointed for months, I thought, well, they'll apply. And I did, and I got named in less than a month. Hmm. So then maybe that was some kind of a sign that it was the right job for you. Yeah. Somebody showed me an interview I did back in 1985 or 6 in the Carolina Review where I said that at some point, I'd probably like to be a judge, and I went. I don't ever remember saying those words. But there they were in black and white, so I clearly said them. That's right. Uh, how did it suit you once you got on the job? I mean, was it... Was it what you had hoped for? Was it what you'd expected? How did it uh, How did it compare to your notions of what being a judge was going to be like? It was actually, at first I wondered if I'd made a mistake, but the longer I did it, the more I realized it was the best job I'd ever taken. I was stupid not to have thought about it earlier. So how long have you been on the bench now? I'd be just turned 11 years, March 23rd. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, one of my colleagues was just saying that when she was an undergraduate here and you were the elected DA, uh, she viewed you as the coolest man on the planet, which is probably not something that most elected DAs have said about them. So you really were giving something up by relinquishing your job as DA. That's interesting. Never heard that. Well, uh, but the, the, there's a first for everything, wow. I suppose. That's, that's so surprising news to me. When you think about working as a judge, um, one of the things you talked with the group of judges here about was asking them, what are you trying to accomplish as a judge? When you put that question to yourself, what do you feel like you're trying to accomplish as a judge? I'm trying to see that justice is done, that people are treated fairly and respectfully, and that as much as I can do it to eliminate prejudice and injustice. You, you were talking with this group of uh, judges before, and you were talking about the ways in which a defendant's perception, a defendant's appearance or a judge's perception of them can influence the way that they're treated sometimes. Everything from the way they're dressed to their race to the way they wear their hair um, to the, the terminology they use addressing the court. And you mentioned the idea of dealing with defendants almost like they deal with contestants on The Voice, where you don't, you don't look at them, you don't see them, you don't let your mind do what it's going to do with them until you've already made the decisions that you need to make. And I love that idea. Can you talk a little bit more about that concept? Well, I think that if you let the visual overtake you, you're probably going to make a bad decision. And so underneath the veneer, I'd be a very good person with a lot of potential. It's unlikely to be what you see for the long haul, but your decisions can make such an impact on one way or the other that either you believe in the person and that they can they can turn, turn your life around, or you don't and you condemn them as just another person that you're sentencing. And it's important what you say, what you see, what you project, be something that 
that you want to have the desired effect. You don't want to leave somebody with the belief that you don't believe they're anything or you don't believe they're anybody because they already get enough of that. What they need is someone who's uplifting them, who's saying, you can do this. You don't have to be this way. You don't have to be in front of judge after judge after judge. In fact, you really should have the goal never to be here again, except as a juror. And that's why I'm having, and I tell them this, that's why we're having this conversation. If I didn't believe in you, I just sentence you and we'd be done. We'd been done several minutes ago. My point is, you can do better. I believe you can do better. And I believe, and I believe that you believe you can do better. And I believe you've got a family out there who believes you can do better. So why don't we try not coming back? Why don't we try understanding that there are a lot of hurdles that you've set up for yourself that you've got to overcome now. So it's not going to be easy, but it beats being here forever and every time you turn around. It seems like you really believe that every interaction that you have with a defendant at the point of sentencing them, for example, is a potential to change the trajectory of their life. So that do. might be a turning point for them. I do, and especially in probation court where you've got people who are real candidates not to come back. And uh, like I can really tell when I'm wasting my time. I mean, if I'm talking to a guy who's hardcore, who's not going to change, who's a gangbanger, who's going to, you know, who's really just nothing I say can make a difference, I don't waste my time with them. I'm polite with them. You know, but I'm not going to waste my time with them. I'm trying to find someone who has the potential to, to be a better person for the next 20, 30, or 40 years. And I don't want that person to end up on in somebody's obituary column or in somebody's street with, time, with crime scene tape around them. I want them to think of themselves better, to think, I believe that they're, they're better than this, and then to go out and try to do that. Because unless they believe those things, they're not going to try. If they don't try, they're going to be back. Yeah. One of the things that you said um, earlier today was that the, the long-run goal is for there to be fewer people in prison, not more. Sometimes you've got to send people to prison, but the goal is to keep people out of prison when you can, and certainly in the long haul, prevent people from having that level of involvement in the criminal justice system. That Absolutely. In the end. And the goal is not to have people make knee-jerk reactions like what happened in the E. Carson case, where all of a sudden everybody's looking at probation like they're the bad guy, and all of a sudden they're changing their all their rules and recommending everyone to go to prison when those, there's 88,000 people we're talking about, and there are only 37,000 in prison. I mean, no one, it was, like, it was like wanting to change the whole judicial system because O.J. Simpson got acquitted. You would never change the system based upon something that's statistically insignificant. And one person out of 80 or two people out of 88,000, no one, no statistician would consider to be statistically significant. There would have to be a trend for someone to do that. And I just think that a lot of people do a disservice, particularly when the defendant is black, to start raising all great ire and being, you know, wanting to change things to make, you know, bad outcomes for defendants to be more likely based upon something that you know is a possibility from the beginning. 
So in the, in the years that you've been involved in the criminal justice system as a prosecutor and now as a judge, you've seen the system change quite a bit, just thinking about sentencing laws. We've moved from an era of discretionary sentencing through fair sentencing and now into structured sentencing. And there have been a lot of changes in terms of how we appoint counsel for indigent defendants and a hundred other aspects of the system. Overall, do you feel like the trajectory of the system is things are getting better, we're headed in the right direction, or do you, are you overall discouraged by what you see? Overall, I think we're headed in a good direction. Overall, overall I think we, we're eliminating more and more discrimination. It doesn't mean that we're perfect yet, but you know, we also have Innocence Project and uh, these hearings to determine whether someone really should be in prison or really was wrongfully convicted. I think that's a long way from where we were 25 years ago. Right. One of the ways, one of the things people are concerned about sometimes in, in recent times is the amount of court costs and fees that have accumulated over the years, and they're quite a bit larger for many defendants now than they were 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Is that an issue that you have thought about or deal with a lot as a Superior Court judge? I never think about that. I tell the statement in the beginning, don't start offering evidence on financial issues unless you can show the defendant had a job and could pay and willfully failed to pay. I don't want to hear about it otherwise. I think we're doing everyone a service by keeping them in jail, then sticking with a bunch of jail fees and putting them on probation and then sticking with a bunch of, of uh, probation supervision fees. We knew from the beginning they couldn't pay. I have a very realistic view of that. I'm only, I think I'm only on someone violated failure to pay twice in 10 years, if you want 11 years. They just never do, because mm -hmm. they just never can. Yeah. Another aspect of the system that, that folks talk about sometimes these days is this concept of uh, mass incarceration or over-criminalization, particularly as it pertains to, to drug laws. And it's interesting to talk to somebody who's been a prosecutor, who's been enforcing those laws, um, how has that informed your your view of that issue? Well, I think, truthfully, a lot of low-level possession should be treated as civil penalties. They shouldn't be, there shouldn't be any criminal stigma attached to them, I think. You wouldn't charge someone for having cancer. Some people are just susceptible to having to be addicted to drugs. We don't prosecute people for being alcoholics anymore. I mean, it's just a problem, and we have to deal with it. I think we're just wasting time and space housing people for minor drug violations. I think we really need to rethink that. I think we don't do a very good job of discouraging people from not going into using drugs. We use stupid advertising. It hasn't been effective. There are a lot of reasons why you shouldn't use drugs. We're just afraid to admit that one of the that one of the upsides of using drugs is getting high. I can't deny that, but there are so many things on the downside that, you know, you, it just doesn't, they're not even comparable, so. You feel like the, the public health approach hasn't really been candid with, with people who may be using or considering using drugs? No, no. And you can't lie to folks, I guess. No, I think when you lie to them, it makes it more inevitable 
but they'll, they'll just experiment, just experiment. Yeah. So that's an interesting view. I wonder where you would draw the line, though, between what you would describe as minor drug violations that could potentially be decriminalized and more serious offenses that should remain criminal. I just think that just personal possession for personal use, not selling or uh, delivering drugs to someone, but just someone who has a little bit of marijuana or a little bit of cocaine or heroin and uses it. And they're not selling it. There's no evidence that they're selling it. I mean, I think that's someone who needs to be needs treatment. Mm-hmm. The point that you've also made before is that it's important, even for judges, to have a life outside of work. Right. That you need something besides your job to focus on. So, for you, what are a couple of things outside of work that matter to you? I like to bake. I like to cook. I like to work out when I could. I like to play golf. Uh, shoot pool. Are you a nine-ball guy or an eight-ball guy? Eight-ball. Mm-hmm. I've always loved cars. I mean, I, I, what's the what's your favorite car that you've ever owned? An M5 BMW, but I have a a five series, a 550i, right now. So, but I drive my minivan more often. Do you have a fantasy car that you've always wanted to own, but you've never been able to? Is there a Ferrari out there that you you wish you could have? There's a a Bentley called the Mulsanne, that I think is absolutely the ultimate car. Although I don't think the Continental GT is a slouch. Uh, I went to Florida to buy a car a few months ago, and the dealership had a, a Rolls-Royce dealership, and so they had a drop-head convertible, which is a massive car. But so you like these giant uh, British cars. That I seems do. like the, the way you're going with it. I do, but I mean, I only like them for for the looks and the way, because they are cars that you just can't find every day. But, no, no, I'd rather have my 550i for driving car any day of the week. Much better handling car and much much more um, of a car that, that I think of a performance car than those cars. Now, maybe if you'd gone into corporate law, you would have had one of those Bentley Continentals or Rolls Royces parked in your garage, but you're going to have to make do. Well, you know, I made a choice, and I'm satisfied with my choice. Well, Well, let's leave it at that. Thank you very much for your time. You're certainly welcome. This is Jeff Welty, back at the wheel of the podcast. That concludes this episode of Beyond the Bench. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, where you can listen to all of our podcast episodes. Most importantly, leave us a review. Positive feedback helps other people find out about our show. If you have any topics that you think we should cover or people that you think should be interviewed here on Beyond the Bench, pitch us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email me at welty at sog.unc.edu, or producer Danielle Rivenbark at danielp at sog.unc.edu. More information about the show is available on the podcast website, podcast.sog.unc.edu. I hope to see you back in two weeks with our next episode of Beyond the Bench. That show will inclu- include Professor Shay Denning's exploration of the real-world impact of being charged with DWI and an interview with Professor Jamie Markham about the law of absconding from probation. This is your host, Jeff Welty, podcast adjourned.